Recording is being recorded. Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or even 300 sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer. And yes, probably at least once a month, I get a giant envelope filled with loose leaf. Um, please visit us on the web at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. I am so excited today to be joined <clears throat> by three authors who have undoubtedly unleashed themselves. M.A. Beasley is the author of The Warrior Angel, and you're gonna love learning all about that. J.P. Quinn, the author of When the Fans Go Home, and Janet Rudolph, the author of Desperately Seeking Persephone, A Shamanic Journey Through the Underworld. But first, we're going to meet Monique Beasley, the author of The Warrior Angel. And our author writes, Gracie and her eight-year-old son, Lucas, are out doing some last-minute Christmas shopping when a nasty car wreck interrupts their night. Lucas nearly dies when Gracie's mother, Teresa, arrives at the hospital with a too-good-to-be-true suggestion. Say this prayer, and I promise your son will live. Her mother has always been very religious and quite superstitious about things. Gracie says the blessing is mainly to get her mom to drop it and be there for her and her son. The prayer works. It's 10 years later and Gracie is haunted by something. She learns that the prayer she said wasn't one at all. She has unknowingly made a bargain with a demon. In return for saving her son, Gracie now owes him a soul. Either she offers one or he will take Lucas. The closer the deal's anniversary, the scarier things get for Gracie and Lucas. Affiliations with this demon go back even further than she knew. Family secrets are coming out. She doesn't know if she wants to know. This demon will stop at nothing to get what is owed. How far will a mother go to save her son? Please welcome author Monique Beasley. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. I am terrified. I am absolutely <laughs> terrified now <laughs> you know and uh how many, thank of us, you. <laughs> how many of us pray for somebody to get healed and we're trying to do all the right things and what inspired this story what made you write this uh i have always always been a fan of horror since i was a little girl wow. i mean i would grow up watching like tales from the crypt with my dad <laughs> when, <laughs> when i was like four or five years old he would let me watch these things but um it's really hard to find movies nowadays that actually really scare me. <laughs> the only ones that really do are movies like that, like The Exorcist and thing, and movies like that. So I was like, if I were to write a book, <laughs> what would be one that would be really good that would really freak people out? <laughs> wow. So you don't get scared by typical horror, blood, guts, doesn't phase you? Not really, no. <laughs> Still have nightmares. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> I, I saw like a Stephen King movie, I don't know. 30 years ago, I'm still having nightmares. 
<laughs> yeah. But, but something like this really scares you. What what inspired you? Was was there an actual car crash or a prayer or what what gave you the the grain for this story? Um well, I, I've been reading books since since I can remember when and my sister is actually an author of children's books and she was going to start her first horror book and she was asking me for tips and we were collaborating on it and things like that and she was like, "I'm surprised you haven't written a book yet." And I was like, "Hmm." That's a good idea. <laughs> I was wow. like, I'm going to give it a shot. I have so many ideas floating around. So I, I just sat down one day and, and just kind of came up with the idea and went from there. <laughs> so your sister throws down a challenge and boom. <laughs> yes. You know how many people say to me, I would love to write, but I don't have any ideas. And you just sat down and you had this amazing idea. I, I have had so many ideas for, I don't know, as long as I can remember, but I never thought to actually sit down and, and get everything out on paper. So I have a list of different books that I'm going to be writing. Um, I was like, okay, let me, let me get started with this. How come I haven't done this yet? <laughs> and it's all so much fun. I love it. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. So this was not like, this was not like a huge, horrible, oh, I'm sorry, I started this project. No, no. Once I sat down and started writing, I was like, I have a new passion. <laughs> you were born for this. You were absolutely, your sister throwing down that challenge was just the <laughs> push that you needed to get this. I think so, it was. <laughs> so, so tell me, I'm glad things went mostly smoothly. Is this, this is your first book? Yes. Wow. And the first, and I say first, I'm definitely not going to say only because it's the first of many. I could tell that already. I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. So for the most part, things went smoothly, but were there any challenges in writing that you kind of didn't expect to happen? Um, in writing the book itself? Um, I think I think being my first time to ever do this, I, I didn't know how to get my thoughts all together to where it made sense to everybody. <laughs> so I was just kind of going with the flow and typing and I'd get a new idea. And I'm like, well, now I have to go back to make sure this makes sense. Right. <laughs> so I learned that I need to make an outline first. <laughs> that that just makes things so much easier, even when you get a new idea, which you're still going to end up doing while you're writing. But that that was the hardest thing for me, just getting my thoughts together on paper to where it made sense. <laughs> okay, so when you first started, I don't know if you've heard the term um, plotters versus pantsers when it comes to writing fiction. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, people kind of pick a side, shall we say. Plotters, P-L-O-T-T-E-R-S, are those who make decisions in advance. They, they figure out the plot, okay? Pantsers, mm -hmm. um, th that was taken from flying by the seat of my pants. People who just sit down and they have no idea where this story is gonna go and they start writing. Now, from what you said, it sounds like you started kind of on the, let's just see where this goes. And mm -hmm. now that you've gotten one book done you realize you know an outline might have been a really good idea yes yes because it's it was like I knew how I wanted the story to be I knew how I wanted it to end I just didn't know how to get there well that's that's better than having a beginning and no end and you're writing and no idea how this thing is going to end <laughs> yes, exactly. My second book is coming along the same way. I wrote my idea down. I'm excited about, and I was like, I know how this book is going to end. <laughs> but let's let's see how I get there first. <laughs> exactly. Now, did anything surprise you in the book? Were there any twists and turns, or or like a character did something you were like, wow, I didn't kind of expect that to happen. Um, 
a little bit. There's a tiny bit of a love story in there that I wasn't think that I was going to end up end up doing. It's just like maybe one or two chapters, but I didn't think I was that kind of writer, but <laughs> that was kind of a twist. I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. <laughs> Let's do this. Sometimes the characters will just do what they do. Yeah, <laughs> you start typing and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> this is what you're gonna do is that kind of a i i don't write romance and then all of a sudden your characters were like having a little romance going huh yeah yeah. (laughs) it took a life of their own i guess (laughs) i i love that i love that they just kind of they just kind of did it without you i know (laughs) that's really kind of interesting now how about when you first was it hard for you to give it to somebody else to read was that like scary it was really really scary yes <laughs> i was like oh my God. person who did you trust um honestly i can't even remember the name because this whole process was pretty new to me still i didn't know where to start who i can trust who i could send this to and not send it to um i really can't remember their name but when they when i sent it i was like just got this feeling in the pit of my stomach i was like oh my god they're reading what i wrote <laughs> was it like your sister or a friend you like sent it to like a writing group or something like that i sent it, I sent it to somebody who was possibly going to be an editor <laughs> wow when they were your first read that is scary yes i was like oh my gosh <laughs> and hopefully that panned out okay or did you it did Several. It did. They actually, they really liked it. Actually, they were like, "Okay, you know, you got a good idea flowing here. You know, if you need any help, I only sent them like maybe my first five chapters. They wanted to see what kind of editing I needed." Fantastic, fantastic. And uh, it is scary. It is scary when the first person reads your book. How about family? Did your family read the book yet? The only person who has read the book is actually is my son. <laughs> really? How old is your son, if you don't mind my asking? He's 19. Oh, good, good. So he's a good reader for this. Yes, he yes. He does. He thinks it's a little funny, though, just because some of the characters are, because the main character, Gracie, she's a dental assistant, and she collaborates with her friends a little bit in the first couple of chapters, and I'm actually a dental assistant myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I based the characters' personalities on them, and he was like, "This is kind of funny because I know exactly what you're talking about." <laughs> well, that makes sense that that their profession is the same as yours because then you know it made it easier. <laughs> exactly. Now, wait a minute. So, if your son is the only person in your family who has read this, that means your sister, who was the catalyst to making you write this, didn't read again. Mm, no, she has read a little pe- bits and pieces that I sent her in the beginning. And every time I talk to her, she's like, I'm going to read it. I swear. I swear. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. And I was like. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I want you to show her that face. <laughs> she definitely needs to have that face because, hey, she started this process. Yes. She like she gets ideas, but for her to actually sit down and read an entire book, she's like, oh, I never finished it. <laughs> Wait, did she ever write a whole book either? She has two children's books out. Oh, right, children's books. But yours is like, I mean, I love children's books, but yours has 10 times as many words. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> at the very least, it has at least 10 times as many words. So, yes. so tell me about like promoting your book. Um, do you, do you try for um, people who like horror? How has the feedback been? Are you going for general readers? What's, what's, your, what's your goal there? At first, I was just going off of social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, 
just for all readers. I didn't really know where to start. And I found that there are certain groups that actually read, you know, horror readers and things like that. Now I'm trying to reach out to them a little bit more, trying to post my book more places and things like that, find different bloggers who like horror movies. Terrific. Yes, well, that brings me to my, I always ask this question. If, if I was going to look through my gift list today, like I was going to go shopping and I'm thinking of all the people I know, can you describe who I should be buying your book for today? Describe um, your ideal reader. Or is it usually like men, women, older, younger? What other authors do they like? Things like that. Honestly, old, young, and it, that part to me really doesn't matter because I mean, I've, I've loved to watch horror movies since I was, you know, <laughs> I learned what the TV was. <laughs> and uh, um, same thing with books. Um, but I mean, it's, it's also a really interesting story. It also talks about like the bond between um, mother and son things that you're willing to do. Um, so, I, I mean, I would really go for somebody who likes to be, uh, you know, to be scared. <laughs> but, I mean, otherwise, it's, I, I think it's a pretty good read otherwise. I, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> As you mentioned about mothers and sons, because that's a huge thing, too. You know, at its crux, it's it's might be a horror story, but it's really about love. Yeah, yes, it can't, yes. You yes, know, absolutely. it's really about the love of a mother for her son. And mm -hmm. at the crux of it all, that's really the, the penultimate theme that's going through is one of, of love and, and, and hope and, you know, trying to make that work out in the midst of a horror story. <laughs> yes. It, it even talks about the son's love for his mother. He's willing to do things for her that, you know, she has no idea about. Fantastic. So it's, it's, yeah, it also can be like quite the quite the little bit of emotional in there. <laughs> now tell me something. I know you're working on another book right now. Is it going to be also horror or are you thinking of trying lots of different genres? Oh, no, it's going to be horror. <laughs> you are a horror girl through and through. There we go. Yes, I am. Maybe one day, but <laughs> just dipping my toes in the writing pool, it's, it's definitely just going to be horror for a while. I get that. I get that. Do you have any favorite horror writers of your own that you like to read? Oh, yes. I have lots and lots of them. Um, I love Stephen King, of course. Um, I'm sitting in my little home library here. Honestly, it's, it's not even like a certain author. It's just, you know, I go to the horror section and I read the blurb and that just kind of draws me in. You know, I'm so glad you said that as a reminder to all of our authors out there, the mm -hmm. blurb is what's making the decision, mm -hmm. you know, and that's mm -hmm. why I read yours out loud so that we can all get into the storyline right away. But it is mm -hmm. the blurb that, that turns lookers into buyers. That's mm -hmm. really exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so more horror. Do you think there's going to be a romance in your, your new horror book or are you not too sure yet? Not too sure yet. It's still in the works. <laughs> I love that. Well, certainly for all of our viewers, we want them to grab a copy of The Warrior Angel uh, by M.A. Beasley. Hurry up and read it because there's a whole lot more coming your way. So you definitely <laughs> with this author for sure. Now, our next author is uh, probably couldn't be any more the opposite, shall we say. <laughs> I, love that. I love when we have opposites because Trust me, I will find a thread. Uh, J.P. Quinn is the author of When the Fans Go Home. And whether you are from the Ricky Bobby era of if you ain't first, you're last, 
or from more recent decades of the Participation Trophy Kids, When the Fans Go Home takes an easy to understand evidence-based approach to healthy competition. This book is relatable to the most elite athletes as well as the casual fan of sports. It's a guide to understanding healthy ways to compete and accepting loss as not only inevitable, but a way to grow and get better for upcoming competitions. The second part of the book talks about the author's own personal experience as an aging adult competing with fans of baseball at a dream week camp with the Baltimore Orioles in Florida, which he now calls home. So come share this adventure with him and find out how one of the author's most significant losses would emerge into one of his greatest wins and inspire the birth of a book. The author of When the Fans Go Home, please welcome J.P. Quinn. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Stephanie, thanks for having me. And, and love that background there. You are definitely the sporting person on our show today. <laughs> yeah, I had, to, I had to set it up so it looks, looks like a studio, but um, yeah, I'm behind the backdrop is just a regular guy. Yes, but I, I'm lucky. I always have this bookcase behind me, so I'm, I'm ready for everything. Uh, right. Before we dive into the book, also tell us a little bit about what you do, because you work with athletes and uh, work with their mindset. So go into a little bit of winning, win with Quinn. Yeah, it's, um, it, it started out kind of interesting. I had a uh, baseball academy in Arizona, and a person came up to me and said, hey, I, I really like your model, and um, where did where did you go to grad school? And I was like, well, I graduated undergrad in '92, and hadn't really. He's, you know, so he he, got, he said you really need to go back to grad school. I was like, did I mention I went to school in '92? That was a DSM three R, and that's now the DSM five for psychology. And so, you know, he he was really a great advocate for me, and he got me through uh, not having to take the GREs. So I went to an online college. I was on probation for a while, but. Uh, fell in love with all the science and cognitive performance. And I realized as I started talking about it, people were like, wow, you're smart. I was like, ooh, I really fooled some people with cognitive appraisal and cognitive dissonance and all these fancy things that I still have to look up from time to time. But um, I, uh, I came back east when I was uh, in grad school and um, just was – working with people, individuals, and then I got hired once I finished grad school to work with the military. And I was in the military and I got out in 2003 in the army. So I went to work for the army as a mental uh, performance coach and really got some good repetitions in there and, and learned a lot more about the science behind it. And then I got to go to Dream Week in the middle of doing this this job and, and realized I was like, hey, uh, I'm preaching a lot of things that I never knew the practice, and I and I really learned so much in that one. I mean, I can't believe it was just one week, but from that came came the book. Wow, I love that. I, you know, I've 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 seen those dream weeks. You know, my my own family we we root for the New York Mets, so I've seen those dream weeks. But you actually went, you lived the dream. I, I did live the dream. And there's just so many people that were a part of it um, that, that brought it all together that I, I couldn't even take the time to, to thank everyone that did it from the, from the inception of the idea to actually getting me through the book. It was, it was quite a journey. 
And that's, and that's so cool for you to do that. You know, a lot of people who work with young people in sports the way you do, uh, hadn't played since they were a young person themselves. For you to have that experience as an adult is very cool. And I'm sure it brought a lot of insights to what you do with working with, with athletes. Yeah, it, it really it really was enlightening because, you know, we're, we're all old men and women for the most part. We're over 40, most 55 or older. Uh, was the, I think the average age was like 58 wow. to 60 that was playing. And you would think that at our age, the competitiveness would kind of go away. And they kept saying, just have fun, just have fun. But there's a ring at the end. There's a championship game. So there's there's this edge that you have that you still want to compete. And there's really not anybody but family watching, right? You're playing this big league facility, and you have maybe 15 or 20 people watching you, and that's really where the title came from. It, it's, it doesn't matter if you have thousands of fans watching. You're being paid millions of dollars. What matters is that you're competing at a level that brings out your very best. Mm, I think that's great. That's amazing. And um, what would you say to somebody who's an adult maybe who wants to – get into still playing that that ship hasn't passed you by has it no and i think that that's one of the things is that uh, when i when i went and, and spoke to coaches i asked coaches what's the most important thing in sports what's the greatest metrics of, of success and of course they say winning and i say okay well i can teach you to win every single game are you interested of course they say yes i say play below your competition if you're a coach in a varsity high school football team Go play the, the Pop Warner kids. You'll destroy them, and you'll win every game. But, of course, that's not satisfying because you're not playing to the level of competition. So when I learned the concept of what competition actually is, I, and I defined it in the first part of the book, how do we define competition? What is a performance? How do we measure a performance? And that's really the critical piece is because when we compete with people that are as good as, as us or maybe a little bit better, it really does bring out our best. And that's really what we're after, no matter what the age is whether we're in, like I said, peewee or whether we're past our prime and the sun is starting to set on our career. We always can be our best and we can always perform at our optimal level, whatever that is. True. You mentioned the participation trophy uh, generation. Do you think that that's been a positive or a negative for this, the young athletes? Uh, it's definitely a negative. Um, it, it's just as much of a negative as, you know, if you're not first, you're last, right? It's, it's, there's extremes to either side. And, and if everyone gets a trophy, then it devalues winning. And winning is important, but earning it is. And so one of the th questions I ask people um, that are older, I say, how old were you when you got your first job? And they may say 15 or 16. And I'll say to them, what did you buy with your very first paycheck? And inevitably, they can pretty much name it. And they probably held on to it for a very long time, whether it was you know, their first album that they bought or a pair of jeans or a jacket, they had it for a very long time. And then I ask them, well, what did you get for Christmas at age 15? Or what did you get for your birthday at 15? And they can't remember. And I say, well, what's the point? The point is when you earn it, it has value and you, and you keep it. When it's given to you, it doesn't hold any value. And, and I talk about that in the book too, um, a little excerpt when I played basketball. And I was not a basketball player, but we had, I was, I think in the 11, 12 year old league and we had a six foot tall kid. So we won the championship because we had the biggest kid in the league and we all got a trophy. And, and I was disgusted by it. Cause I was like, I didn't, I didn't even at an early age, I knew 
Like I didn't really, it didn't make me feel good because because I didn't play. I mean, I played. I was on the court, but pass it pass it to the big kid. You know, that's what we did. That was a whole game plan. So there was no value in getting that trophy. No, I get that. And and when when you're given trophies that you don't earn, then it makes it like why bother trying? Exactly. I mean, and and in the job that I have now, I've I've seen that a lot, which is actually helping me write my second book, um, which I'm putting the notes together now. In that, if there's not if there's not consequence, if there's if there's no, and that's part of the performance, it has to matter. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, if there's no consequence to it, then you're not going to try, and you're not going to value the benefit of getting any reward. And I, I teach now and I, I, we just had graduation and I saw some kids that got a diploma that probably didn't earn it, but they got pushed through and you can see it. And, and the ones that worked, I mean, even if they got a lower grade, the ones that really struggled and pushed and grind through the, the process, they, when they got their diploma, you could see it. They were beaming because they knew they had earned it. So there's a reward that was given to two groups of people those that earned it and those that didn't, and the and the outcome was completely different for those that, that actually earned it. I get that. I get that. And and yeah, it is empty if it's just handed to you. It's just right. incredibly empty. Now, you coach and work with groups now. Uh, do you feel pushback on trying not to have that continue on, you know, like from parents and such? Are parents the hard part of your equation, actually? Um, I've worked more with older athletes now where they're kind of seeing that they, uh, if they, and if they don't get it early on, it's not like you can't get it later. And, and so one of the, one of the skills that, that I talk about is um, what makes a great performer, what makes a great athlete. And we go through all these different characteristics of what makes a great athlete. And at the end, we, we break them out. Is this a skill? Is this an attitude or is this a gift? And oftentimes people will think, oh, they're very gifted, but it's not, not tr- that's not true because most of the time it's attitudes and skills that we develop over time. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from Brooks Robinson, I may not have it exactly, but he says, um, talent, if, if, if you're not willing to practice, someone out there somewhere is, and they're willing to take your job, right? So, uh, and today is Brooks Robinson's birthday too. So as a, as a, an Oriole fan, I got to, I got to shout out to that, but it's so true. Like hard work will outlast talent when talent doesn't work hard. Right. That's another, that's another famous quote, but it's, it's, it's so true that um, you have to apply that talent because I think younger kids and I, and I experienced this in little league that I, I made it through college and I played in the independent league. And when I came back and I was playing towards the twilight of my career, which was at 24, um, I, I was coming across kids that played a little league that were so much better than me, but I kind of caught up and surpassed them because I was out there working and grinding and really pushing. So while I didn't make it to the majors as the pitcher I wanted to be, I still made it as far as I could. And when you walk away, when you walk into the sunset, there's gratification because you know, you worked and you got everything out of your talent that was, that was there. I love that. You're absolutely right. It means so much more than, you know, you're the one who did it. Right. And, and that's part of the what I'd say in the book, too, is like finding that gratitude, even in loss, mm. because I think, you know, it might, you know, we talk about now with a participation trophy generation where we devalue winning. We also devalue winning when winning is the only thing that matters. And, I, and unfortunately, I, I lost a lot of the 
the love of competition because I was so focused on an outcome that we can't control. And we, we really can't control winning. And, and I use the example of a hitter in baseball. If a hitter bats 300, they're a great hitter. But that also means they failed seven out of 10 times. They only got three hits out of 10. So we, we fail a lot in sports, but we can grow from failure. We want wins to build confidence. And I talked about that as well, as well. But we also need those losses so we can grow. We need to take risks. We need to take chances. And we need to, we need to fail and be able to grow from that. And I think that the generation we're talking about now, the younger generation, doesn't get that opportunity because there is no danger, right? There, there's, you know, parents are very protective of, of children and they're probably safer now than they were back when I was a kid. You know, we were sent out into the woods and there was no surveillance. There was no way to check in. You were out on your own. You had to survive until the lights came on and you went home, you know, and that was it. And nowadays with technology and with so much happening, we get a lot of information about the evil in the world and all these bad things, but they're actually safer in it. I mean, statistically, kids are safer now outside than they ever have been in the history of, of the world. Wow. Times do change, don't they? They do. So tell me about your ideal reader. Who should be getting a copy of your book today? Well, I would say anybody that's, that's in competition. So if you have a competitive nature and you thought you knew what competition was or you thought you knew what performance was or you thought you could define confidence, um, this is the book for you because it really defines things for you. And um, at the end, one of the things I do in sessions when I'm teaching skills is I add a activity skill. So in the, in the back of the book, um, there are activities to attach to the skills we talk about in the first uh, few chapters. Hmm. Very nice, very nice. Well, you'll want to grab a copy of that and remind us where, if we are local to you in Florida, um, for coaching of young people, young athletes. Yeah, so uh, my website is uh, com, and they can go on the, to com and uh, sign up for a session on there. I do individual sessions, group sessions. And what I'm really excited about is taking this book to corporate America because that is a really untapped market. I've done the military, I've done athletes, and everyone sees the value in that. But where it's really exciting and it can grow is in, in the corporate America world where there's such high turnover. Oh, and, and, and they keep throwing bonuses. And bonuses are like participation trophies. They may earn it, but then it doesn't continue, right? So you could pay someone a high salary, but if they don't have autonomy and they don't have purpose and they don't feel like they belong to something greater, then if they have no internal value, that extrinsic motivation is going to go away. And I talk about that in the book too because we have, like, for example, we have professional athletes that sit out of their sport that they used to love to play because they're now not getting the contract that they want, which is – kind of insanity, right? Like the window to be a professional athlete is so small. And so. You muted yourself. Oh, <laughs> whoops. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so I was, I was saying that um, the, I, I kind of lost where I was at, but that in, in corporate America, there is this, uh, not understanding how to maintain employees through that internal value that they have of feeling like they belong to a company. And so 
a paycheck is is a external reward motivation. It's reward and punishment. If you come to work, you get rewarded with a paycheck. If you don't come to work, you get fired. And that is just enough to get somebody to look to go somewhere else. But if someone feels like they belong and they have that autonomy and purpose, then they're, they're more likely to stay. So I'm very excited to uh, work in corporate America as well, because I think that the, the lean model and six, six the black belt model have a purpose, but they're all outcome driven and they, they're looking at winning. And what I want to look at is performance. Mastery of skill sets will ultimately get you that win that you're looking for, but we got to go back. No team goes into a locker room on day one and says, today we win the championship. I love that. I love bringing that message to corporate America. And I would think that because you are an athlete and it's coupled with that viewpoint, you know, with all due respect to corporations, we hear a lot of business speak over and over and over. And it's great to hear it with something that is relatable, something that, you know, probably 90% of the people that you're talking to have had those kinds of experiences as a young person or as an adult. And now you're, you're connecting that, that value and goals and drive to something else. Right, and, and all those worksheets are in the back of the book as well. Fantastic, yes. So uh, if you grab a copy of the book, there's also worksheets for you, for yourself, or to work on with a group, which is fantastic. Love that, thank you. Uh, certainly our next author also wants people to be Impressing, shall we say, improving themselves and the rest of the world. Janet Rudolph is the author of Desperately Seeking Persephone, A Shamanic Journey Through the Underworld. And our author writes that Desperately Seeking Persephone is a thrilling autobiography that includes explorations of mythic worlds, fantastic adventures, encounters with extraordinary people, and the visitation of an archangel. It begins, begins as Rudolph sets out on a quest for healing after a childhood of abuse and sexual assault. Her travels reveal a vision of what's possible when seeking out the mysteries inherent in the world. This is the tale that could have been told if Indiana Jones had met Joseph Campbell. Rudolph forges her own pathway out of trauma and depression by using the Greek goddess Persephone's mythic trip to the underworld as a map. Along the way, Rudolph earns two shamanic initiations described in vivid detail. The shamanic journey is ultimately about discovering wholeness and harmony, wholeness of self, of relationships, of interacting with the natural world. Through the craft of storytelling, Rudolph reveals esoteric spiritual tools and processes that form a primer of shaman craft. This is a journey that is personal, global, and accessible to all. Desperately Seeking Persephone is a humorous, engaging, heroic journey with surprising twists and universal appeal. The adventures themselves offer a template of healing for anyone looking for their own pathway out of darkness and suffering. Please welcome author Janet Maikai Rudolph. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. And and did I say that correctly, Maikai? So yeah, yes, Maikai. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I actually wrote it on a post-it note so I could practice that. <laughs> 
Thank you. I absolutely love the way you talk about from personal to global and, and how the journey really is each of us as an individual on a journey and then the journey being global. And that's your own journey. Your own journey is one that's personal. And now through your own work, you're making it global. Love that. And not, not just me, it's, it's the global journey since time immemorial, that, that quest, that quest for who am I and, and what am I about and what are the mysteries of the universe even. Absolutely, absolutely. When did you first realize, I mean, I know that certainly your journey began with trauma way back, but at some point you had an evolution of taking that trauma and not only being healed yourself, but wanting to also reach out to others. When did that occur? So, so the reach, when I wanted to be healed myself or reaching out to others? Both, both. <laughs> so I guess, the, the, so the, the wanting to be healed myself, it, it was a really a calling, you know, to, to go through a shamanic journey and to do shamanic training, it's a calling because it's very, it's, it, it's hard. You have to really face personal demons and, and, and challenges and all your fears. So it really is a calling. And I started my, my um, uh, formal training in 1997. Uh, so 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. But, and then when I, and, and, and throughout time, you know, there, there's the biblical verse from Matthew, you know, if you have a light, you don't hide it under a bushel. So when you start gaining this knowledge, you do want to share it because it really is spectacular. So correct me if I'm getting the timeline wrong. You actually started the shamanic journey to help yourself before you even got to the point of wanting to reach out to others. It was totally for my own healing. There is an archetype called the wounded healer. Okay. And I would fit that archetype because that, that's why that I, I needed to do my own healing before I could step out into the world. You know, that always reminds me, they, they say when you're on an airplane, if there's a decompression and those masks fall, put it on yourself first before you put it on someone else. That's kind of what you just... That's exactly it. You have not, what do you have to offer if you haven't... If you haven't I, I I use the roots of a tree as an example, usually, because if you haven't, you don't have those strong roots. If you haven't nourished them, fed them, watered them, the, the rest of the tree won't have anything to offer. Mm, that's very, very true. And, and even on a smaller level, you know, sometimes they talk about how we as people, um, or especially caregivers, parents, etc., if we don't you know, sleep enough, eat properly, all those other things, you're going to be useless to the rest of the world. You really, self-care has become yes. a big buzzword, but boy, you're, you took it way beyond just getting a good night's sleep. That's for sure. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> now of all the different ways, I mean, there are, there are unfortunately many people who have had trauma in their life and yes. different people, um, hopefully, uh, choose a path out of their trauma. Unfortunately, some don't. Um, but people choose different paths, whether they are choosing, um, you chose this shamanic journey, other people choose other journeys. What made you choose the shamanic journey? 
It always met myths, especially Greek myths, always fascinated me. And I think it's because I related to them, but they're so universal. That's why I say Joseph Campbell can write a hero of a thousand faces because there are a thousand different ways to, to see that journey. And, every, and, and one of the tenets or one of the principles of my Hawaiian pathway is um, there's always another way to do something. So there's always another way. There's all, each person can resonate with a different path. And, and that's beautiful. And that's why there are so many paths. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And it's funny. I asked you um, why you picked that path. But in actuality, I think in many ways, a path picks us. Mm, I like that. Yes. You know, I'm not, <laughs> sure that, I'm not sure that I really picture you sitting down and saying, okay, here are five <laughs> options on how I can heal my trauma. Which one shall I pick? Right. And I was thinking that when when Monique was talking and I jumped on it when her sister said, you should write a book and instantly it flowed. It was, your sister was like the catalyst to something that had already chosen you. Being a fictional author had chosen you long before she said that. And yet she said it and the spigot went on. And I think that Janet, the same thing happened with people who came into your life, people whose past, yes. you did not sit down with a checklist and say, which journey should I go on? I, to be honest, I was, I was broken and I was sick and, and I, and I would have glommed onto anything because, because I was desperate. And, and I had this opportunity to go study with two shamans who lived in Maine at the time, a husband and a wife team. And, and they actually healed me of my, the illness I was struggling with at the time. And I, and I was hooked. I became their apprentice pretty much on the spot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I, it's like, yeah, this, this is it. I found my path. I found, I found it. Yeah. Of course, it took another 17 years before I was really able to understand what I was dealing with. Okay. Well, things take time and, you know, yes. much like, you know, I think because you also work with people the way JP works with people and it found you, you know, with JP, he was a, an athlete younger, then went to dream week, had like this merging of a lot of different experiences and now he can bring it to other people. Right. You know, it was, it was, it was like Janet, what you said about when you have a light, you don't keep it covered. Um, you have that light. In, in sports and competition and mindset, JP, you have that light. And you're bringing that to other people, which is, is certainly a gift. Uh, Janet, what, where do you see yourself going now? You know, you've had this, and I'm never going to presume that that healing or journey has a finite beginning and end. But, no. but sometimes at least you, you, you can, you know, overlap to the next journey. Where do you see, what, what journeys still await you? Wow, <laughs> that's a big question. Is. I'm actually not sure, I'm actually not sure, but rather than, once upon a time that would have frightened me to not know, but now it's kind of exciting to think, because that's really the world of possibilities. Of I love when, that. When you have, when, you have when, when everything's an option, one of the things I do locally is I lead labyrinth walks. I, they call me at uh, the church that I lead them at the labyrinth mage. 
So I've really been I've, I've really been enjoying that because that that's that's a a momentary ritual where you that journey that same that journey inward to the center to learn about yourself and then to journey out and bring it back into the world. So I just, I love elements like that and and to find more of them, you know, however I can manifest them into my life and into others' lives. I love that. I'm so glad you said what you did about the, that fact that the unknown would have frightened you before and now you find it exciting because I loved the way when Monique was talking about the book that she wrote as well as future books, there was a lot of unknown in there. There was definitely a lot of, you know, hey, I'm going to write a book. I sort of know how I want it to end, but I'm not really. And, and you know what, Monique, I have to say, you didn't once look frightened or bothered by that big unknown. I thought that was great. The look on your face was actually the opposite of fear. It was, this is kind of cool. Not really sure where this story is going to go. I'm going to find out. And, and that was really so refreshing. <laughs> yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was exciting not knowing what was going to happen. <laughs> I think that's great. And, and you being excited that you didn't know what was going to happen. And now I'm hearing Janet say, you know, in the past, I would have been kind of scared if I didn't know what was going to be happen, but now I'm kind of excited. All, all possibilities are open, and that's a, it's quite a place to be. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really cool not to really know what's going to happen. Uh, JP, how about you? Do you know exactly what's going to happen next, or are you kind of open to where this is going to take you? You were talking about corporations and working with other people and Sounds exciting, and it also sounds like, wow, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah, I, I have no idea what, what's going to happen with this. Um, it's kind of a whirlwind right now, and one of the interesting things I think we had this conversation is, until you sent me the final proof, I never read my book. And I said it was like building a puzzle. You have all these pieces, and until it's complete, you really don't step back and see the full picture. So I, I never read it you know, fully through until you sent me the final proof. And were you like, so even, it's a darn good book I just wrote there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, this might actually make it, so. That is a darn good book you wrote there. Yeah, sometimes we need to step back on our own thing. And by the way, I'm all in favor of patting yourself on the back because uh, the three of you have done what so many people say they want to do, write a book. And how many people, I'm sure you've met in your life, a million people who when they, when you tell them, I wrote a book, they, don't they all say things like, oh yeah, yeah, I think I was gonna, I'm gonna write a book one day. I was thinking about writing, but don't they say things like that? You're like, yes. aha, but I did. <laughs> I mean, that's why I even kind of alluded to Monique's sister who said, you should write a book. I said, did, did she write a book? Well, she did, thankfully. She didn't just tell you to do something that she didn't, but. I bet you hear it from a lot of people who didn't. So I love that element of the unknown, that we're not really sure what's out there next. Now, Monique, speaking about what's out there next, I know you have at least one book in the works right now. Yes. Are you, are you the type of person that you have like a million stories going on in your head at once? Or are you like focused? Uh, I had a million stories going in my head at once. <laughs> so if I get a random idea, I have to hurry and kind of write it down because I'm like, okay, 
is this idea going to be a whole nother book or is it going to be a scene in another book? So I just try to write everything down. <laughs> he used to write it down. Are you an actual paper person or you, do you like keep notes on uh, your phone? Uh, uh, on, on paper. I'll carry post-its around in my, in my pocket at work. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And next thing you know, you're going to have a whole wall full of post-its. <laughs> Maybe. Yes. Well, now what do I do? <laughs> Maybe all of your characters are going to meet each other, and that's going to be a, a nice thing. One big story. All right. So we're not really sure what's coming next. Working on one, but there's a million other ideas out there. And and mm -hmm. and JP, or uh, are you reaching out to corporations? Are they reaching out to you? Or are we going to meet in the middle? How's that going to work? Well, I'm really thinking that this book is going to be the thing, right? Because up until now I've tried to sell an idea and now I have something tangible that I can hand them and say, here is my idea. And, and so read this. And I think that um, in my field, especially like once you get in, you know, once you get published or once you put something in writing, you have that subject matter expert credibility. And that's what people have told me for years is you need to get published. You need to write a book. And, um, and I would say any, to anybody that wants to write a book, don't be afraid to ask for help because even with all the skills that I teach, I had to go to another performance uh, expert that worked with me, Dave Williams. He's a great guy, um, master chess player. And I was like, I'm stuck. I don't know where to go. Like I got so caught up in a word count. And he said, well, what can you write a day? I said, well, I can write 300 words a day. And he said, then write 300 words a day. And then the book, then, then the book came to, to be done, you know, and, and uh, so, so sometimes you have a great idea, but it's so, it's so confusing in your own head that you almost get paralyzed with it. So um, sometimes somebody has to unwrap those Christmas lights for you before you can hang them up and see how bright they are. Fantastic. And thank you for the shout out uh, to that catalyst for you. We have uh, Monique's catalyst in yours. Uh, Janet, how about you? Did you have anybody who has been kind of pushing you? To write, to write this book. Well, so I started writing this book in two, about two or two years ago because some very strange things started happening in my life. People from 1970s were showing up in my life and I couldn't, it, was, it wasn't making sense. It was the, the time was, were not, was non sequitur and it was a big mystery. It still is a big mystery actually. So I, I, I actually started writing in order to in order to make sense of it. So I didn't actually write it with the thought of putting it out into the world, but I belong to, to Judy Turek's writing group, who a shout out to her. And, and so I would read chapter by chapter or story by story. And, and they really encouraged me to, to put it together as a grander whole yes. and then to put it out into the world. Well, I, you know, I'm going to take as one piece of advice for all future writers out there listening to all of this. It does not have to be a solo, like, endeavor that don't think you're all by yourself. You know, it really is, it really is something that other people are part of your story and your journey and for you to be part of somebody else's journey too, which I think is so great. I so appreciate the three of you shouting out somebody out. Any tips for somebody who wants to get started? JP, we'll start with you. What's your tip for a future writer? Well, uh, it's funny. I'm going to quote an old 80s movie. It was Throw Mama from the Train. And it, 
they always said at the end of class, a writer writes always. And that's really what it is, is just write it. Don't worry about where it's going. I think we heard that from Monique too. Like her characters kind of took a life of their own. And, and I think that whether it's fiction or nonfiction, that's, that's the key. Like let the journey be your course. You know, you don't have to know the destination. And I think a lot of times we get caught up in that because everyone has a GPS now. We know exactly where we're going. But writing a book can be the that can be the adventure. And it, it has. It's been so gratifying um, to go through it. And so I would say that just write it, you know, just start writing it and have fun with it and then seek help where you need it. Fantastic. Janet, how about you? A tip for a new writer? I love the have the fun part. I, I, I love that. Thank you for that. Uh, my, but my first thought was to just trust the process and follow mm -hmm. your heart like because because it is a process, as, as Monique said, you know, the, the story took her places she didn't expect. And even though mine is an autobiography and it's my own life, it took me places I didn't expect. And, and but if you trust the process and you kind of have an open heart or you follow your own heart about it, it the process, the process will work. It really will work. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. That even when you're writing what you think is your own story, that there's still a path that you might not think it's going to go on. Yes, I think that's fabulous. And Monique, a tip for our new writers out there. Honestly, I'm just going to have to agree with JP and Janet. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can think that this is going to be a long process. What's going to happen next? How do I get it edited? How does this happen? If you have a story in your head, just just write it down. <laughs> just get it written down. Just get it out. <laughs> and it'll just take you where you don't know it's going to take you. <laughs> just jump in, folks. Just, just write it down. Just to remind all of our viewers, um, The Warrior Angel by M.A. Beasley. You'll definitely want to get scared. Keep the lights on while you're reading this, <laughs> folks. Unless you're a glutton and you want to just do it by candlelight and really suck it up there. Uh, <laughs> J.P. Quinn wrote, When the Fans Go Home, a great look at competition both on and off the field. Thank you. And uh, Janet Rudolph wrote, Desperately Seeking Persephone, a shamanic journey through the underworld. You'll be following her journey as well as learning more about yourself and your own journey. Thank you so much for joining me. You've been an inspiration to so many people and I really love having you and showing off your book. So thanks for being here.